about it. Ask questions. Read it with somebody else uh, over, over the internet or stay in contact. Hey, did you read that chapter this week? Are you reading, the, are you reading these chapters? Dig deep. Immerse your heart and your mind into the book of Romans. I've been doing this for months and I have been utterly blessed by the word of God, the book of Romans. It's the undeserved, unmatched, unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul gives to the church in Rome. I need to take a few moments this morning and set up where we currently are and where we are going. This is going to help us follow Paul's thought process, follow his flow of thought uh, through, the, through the letter. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we've, we've left some handouts uh, throughout the auditorium, throughout our worship space here this morning. We hope that that will be a helpful tool to you to tracking with Paul. If you're following along at home and you, have, uh, you don't have uh, the, the handout there, let us know if you would be interested in that. And we will try to get that into your hands this week via email. We've identified six divisions of this book. These aren't all original with me. I've studied through several resources and given lots of thought and time and energy to it. So the, the six divisions that we've identified are the priority of the gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The heart of the gospel, which begins with verse number 18 of chapter 1 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 4. And then we'll come to the assurance of the gospel, a defense of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, and then the advancement of the gospel as the book closes. So we gave the first seven sermons of our series, one introductory sermon, and then uh, six sermons under that first division of the priority of the gospel. And that division culminated in the text from last Sunday, verses 16 and 17. Now that text is incredibly important for our understanding of the book of Romans. In fact, I thought since there were so many people gone last week, so many people traveling, I thought about preaching that same sermon over again today. But for those of you that are here, I decided that probably wouldn't be the most beneficial thing to do. So I'm not going to do that, but I want to encourage you that if you didn't weren't here for that service, you weren't able to watch it online, that you go back and to our website, to the YouTube channel, and you take, t t uh, do some makeup work and, and, and listen to that. Not because it's the best sermon you'll ever hear, but because it encapsulates the book of Romans in a couple of verses and it really sets the tone for, for where, we're, where we're going. So today we come to that second section, the heart of the gospel. We're going to, in fact, divide that section into subdivisions, subsections, if you will, over the next several weeks. So we're going to think about God's righteousness revealed through wrath, and that'll take us through the end of chapter 1. We're going to talk about God's righteousness reigning with justice, that as God's righteousness is, is reigning in this world and through his children, that it's done so in a perfectly just way. And then at the end of that section, we're about the heart of the gospel, we're going to see God's righteousness is received by faith. So we're talking about the heart of the gospel. God's righteousness is revealed through wrath. We're going to start going there today. God's righteousness is reigning with justice, and God's righteousness is received by faith. Because you remember, we've talked about God's righteousness is, is all through Romans. It's, it's the righteousness that we need. It's the righteousness that we don't have, but that we must have if we are to have everlasting life. Now, I just went through a bunch of details. 
um, to, to kind of set up where we're going. And I don't expect you to remember all of that. Some of us geek out over, over outlines, and some of us don't geek out over, over outlines. So I don't expect you to be geeking out over the outline this morning. And I'll repeat some of that as we go along, but hopefully it will at least give us a little bit of structure, maybe somewhere some hooks to hang our, hang our main thoughts on as we follow, as we track with the apostle through this, this grand letter. Then, now, would you please follow along in your scriptures as I read from Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse number 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, for in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then here's our text for this morning, verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, so those people are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. But they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish, heart was, were, foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God unto the, to an image uh, made like unto corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. Have you ever sat down to a meal? Maybe you were a guest at someone else's house. Maybe you went to one of those fundraisers where they serve a meal, you know, a several-course meal, and they have the ask at the end of the the meal for for finances to be able to, to serve a ministry or to... Uh, a particular event going on and you sit down to that meal at a friend's house and you see what the menu is and you're like huh I never would have put thought about thought about putting those particular menu items together that sure is interesting is interesting I mean who would have ever thought corn on the cob and spaghetti in the same meal oh maybe some of you guys do that I don't know looking at some of your eyes um, I can't tell or ketchup on pancakes. Who would have ever thought? And we have these preconceived ideas that this doesn't go with this. And I tend to poke fun at that kind of thing um, from time to time. But we still have this idea these two things shouldn't or should go together. You know, I was thinking this week, it's possible that we think that way when we come to the text of our passage this morning. Maybe you're thinking, well, Paul's has outlined the righteousness of God. He's talked about in the gospel, verse number 17, for, in, for therein in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as is written, the just shall live by faith. And then in verse 18 he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Do those go together? Maybe we think the wrath of God, a wrathful God, 
maybe we're kind of thinking that it pushes against the grain of what we think when we think about a gracious God. Paul speaks of God's righteousness, and in the very next verse, he speaks of God's wrath. We need to know, we need to see God's righteousness and God's wrath as parallel tracks rather than in opposition to one another. God's righteousness and God's wrath run as parallel tracks together, part of the same message from God, and they are not in opposition to one another. Verse 18 opens with an important conjunction, the word for. It's answering the question that comes to mind. It's, it's there for us in verse number 17. Paul, he makes the declaration, For in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so we might be asking ourselves, why did God reveal his righteousness in the gospel? Why did he go to this extent to, of, of this good news to reveal that he is a righteous God and has a righteousness that we need? And why is righteousness only available to you by faith? The just shall live by faith. Why did God, why, why did God reveal his righteousness in the gospel? And why is his righteousness only available to us by faith? Precisely because... He is also revealing, in verse number 18, his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, God's wrath necessitates the gospel. God's wrath, God's anger with sin necessitates the gospel if the just are to live by faith. Note with me this morning three elements of the character of God's wrath. First of all, God's wrath is completely authoritative. Verse number 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's God's wrath. It's not the wrath of a, a law enforcement officer. It's not the, the wrath of a school teacher. It's not the wrath of a parent. We're talking about the almighty God of the universe. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. That means we cannot compare it to, to, to man's wrath. What, what is God's wrath not? God's wrath is not to be thought of as, as God being annoyed or irritated with man's sin. Neither is, is God's wrath an uncontrolled anger. God's wrath is not just God losing his temper, if you will, because someone has sinned against him. Rather, God's wrath should be understood as his rage, as his fury. God's wrath is his anger against sin. It's part of his very person. God's wrath is his indignation for sin. John Murray put it this way. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against what is, the, what is contradiction of his holiness. Here it is again. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against what is the contradiction of his holiness. 
Friends, God's wrath is the only response we should expect from a holy God. Certainly, if we believe that God is holy, we would not expect Him to turn a blind eye to the sin of humanity. God's wrath was pronounced in the Garden of Eden after the sin of Adam and Eve. And then their son Cain murdered his brother and he was a subject of God's anger. The anger, the the authoritative wrath of God. Later we read of God's wrath raining down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. His authoritative wrath raining on on their cities because of their sin. The Old Testament prophets often speak of God's wrath. For instance, Isaiah says in chapter 9, Though, uh, Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Eventually, God's children were carried into, into captivity, into Babylon. Why? As a means, as a channel of God exercising His wrath for their sin. We read in the New Testament, in the the Gospel of John, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God will remain on him. Paul describes to the church at Ephesus how we have been dead to sin. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the, of, of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Eternal fury against sin is not meted out by another man, than, than another man, another human being. It's exercised, it's executed by God himself. The wrath of God is completely authorized. It's God's wrath. Here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul describes the wrath of, the wrath of God as, as present action. God's wrath is being revealed. God's wrath is as much revealed as is the righteousness of God being revealed. God is not sitting idly by, my friends. God is angered with sin. He is angered with the sin in the garden. He is angered with the sin of Israel. He is angered with the sin of Hitler, and God is angry with the sin of America. How do we respond to the completely authoritative wrath of God? We respond with warning and expectation. Let us not be surprised, brothers and sisters, at God's action against a nation that has actively aggressively and passionately refuse to submit to his authority. We should not be surprised at God's action against nations and people groups that continue to sin. God is angry that babies are killed inside their mother's womb. God is angry that men are consumed with passion for other men and that women are consumed in passion for other women. Expect to see the wrath of God in our world. Maybe it's mercifully delayed. Maybe it is not. God's wrath does not always come immediately. 
We should, ex- we should respond to the authoritative wrath of God with warning and with expectation. We should also respond to the, to the authoritative, the completely authoritative wrath of God with humility. While you may experience ramifications of God's wrath for the sin of others in our world, as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity being in Christ, you will never face God's wrath for your sin. As a child of God, you will never face God's wrath for your sin. God's anger for your sin has been appeased in Christ's work at the cross. We sang of it this morning that in Christ's work at the cross, in Christ alone, God's wrath has been satisfied. That doesn't make you better than the rest of the world. It makes you blessed. It doesn't give you the right to look down on others. It gives you the responsibility to warn others. Brothers and sisters, respond to the authoritative wrath of God with humility, with warning and expectation. I would encourage you this morning, examine your own hearts. Look for pride that may exist. Ask God to convict you of ways that you have taken for granted the truth that you have by His grace escaped His wrath. Why did God reveal His righteousness in the gospel? Why is His righteousness only available to you by faith? Precisely because He has also revealed His wrath from heaven against your unrighteousness. God's wrath is completely authoritative. Secondly, God's wrath is completely inclusive. We read in verse number 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is angry about ungodliness and unrighteousness. This isn't to be understood as a, as a list of sins that we've committed, that humanity has, has committed. Rather, that he is, he is angered against ungodliness. He is angered against universal sin. Our, our, our nature that we received from Adam. For as the, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Romans tells us. I mentioned the first word of verse number 18, the word for. It answers the question from verse 17. But it also begins an argument that runs all the way through chapter, through chapter 3, verse number 20. Paul set it up in verses number 16 and 17. He says, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And, and that, that gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And the very righteousness that humility so, that, that humanity so desperately needs. That's, what, that's the righteousness that we need. Then Paul explains that righteousness that we need that righteousness because we're all sinners. Ungodliness and the righteousness of men. And verses 18 through the end of chapter 1, he's chiefly directing his, his, his words to the Gentiles. And then chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, verse number 8, he's mostly ta- uh, three, eight, he's talking to, to the Jewish people. And then in verse number 9 of chapter 3 through verse number 20, he makes his, these grand declarations. There is none righteous. No, not one. No, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none righteous. No, not even one. No one does good. Not even one. Then after that, the Apostle Paul returns to this idea of righteousness. So look with me in your copy. 
Chapter 1, verse number 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, scanning down chapter 18, verse 18 all the way to the end of the, the chapter, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, or to, to, to Gentiles, chapter 2, he's talking to Jews all the way through chapter 3, verse number 8, and then verse number 9 of chapter number uh, 3, all the way through verse number 20, he's talking to, to everyone, it's a universal claim, all of us are under the wrath of God, and then look at verse number 21 of chapter, th of chapter 3. He returns to the subject from 117, he says, after all of this time spending explaining that we're sinners, he says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And he goes on for the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and describes the righteousness of God being revealed by faith. An individual will not appreciate the amazing grace of God until he first understands the fierce wrath of God. So under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul takes great lengths to make sure he clearly communicates that God's wrath is completely universal. It's completely inclusive. God's wrath is against the sins of Gentiles. God's wrath is against the sins of Jews. God's wrath is against the sins of the human race. And as Paul explains the heart of the gospel, he starts with the wrath of God. He doesn't start by explaining to the, those who are struggling in Rome or in an individual that has ruined someone's, that as alcohol has ruined someone's life. He doesn't explain talking about that. He doesn't begin with talking about someone's individual dysfunctional family that's, 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 that's ruined their life or the chaotic financial situation that has brought a person into hard times. Rather, he starts with the wrath of God. One commentary put it this way. All, therefore, stand under the awful reality of the wrath of God. And all are, un are in desperate need of the justifying power of the gospel of Christ. We will never come to grips with the importance of the gospel. We will never be motivated as we should be to proclaim that gospel until this sad truth has been fully integrated into our worldview that is the wrath of God. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, has the reality of God's wrath been fully integrated into your worldview? Do we truly accept the reality of this teaching that Paul gives to us? The power of sin is so absolute, so completely inclusive, that the only rescue option is the power of God. The gospel, that is God's righteousness, is the power of God to salvation. God's anger poured out on all who deserve it. It's, it's the entire human race. If there's one exception, it's to all those who place their faith in Jesus. Jesus served as a substitute for all who repent and believe. So Jesus Christ can satisfy God's wrath for your sin. Paul spends the better parts of three chapters explaining God's wrath is completely inclusive. He's talking about an eternal condemnation. He's talking about God's wrath. He's talking about eternity in hell, facing continuous, constant, 
eternal, never-ending torments. Eternal condemnation. The wrath of God is the very first motivation that Paul offers in, 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 in evangelization, in telling others that they should come to Christ. The first pressure that Paul applies to evil men is to warn them of the wrath of God. So how do we respond to God's wrath being completely inclusive? We should be sobered. So I ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Has Christ appeased God's anger for your sin? Are you certain that you will not face God's wrath for what you have done? My friends, be sobered by the all-inclusive wrath of God against sin. Secondly, we can respond by being responsible. Being responsible in our evangelism. If your evangelism is to be biblical, then we must not start with, have you asked Jesus to come into your hearts? We must start with, did you know that God is angered because of your sin? Did you know that God will reveal, that God is revealing his wrath against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Why did God reveal his righteousness in the gospel? Why is his righteousness only available to you by faith? Precisely because he has also revealed his wrath against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. God's wrath is completely authoritative. God's wrath is completely inclusive. Thirdly, and lastly, God's wrath is completely justified. Verse number one, chapter number one, verse number 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The last phrase says, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The ESV says, who, who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath against the entire human race uh, is because of the sin of suppressing the truth. His wrath is justified because man is suppressing the truth. I came across this image several months ago. It was helpful to me. I remembered it for, for many months, and even I remembered that it came from this passage, and I thought I'll share it with you because hopefully it will stick with you as well. R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, modern-day theologian of this passage, says, we might, thinking of the truth being suppressed, Sproul says, we might think of a giant spring or coil that would require all the strength in our body to push down or to compress. And while we are pushing it down, it is resisting our strength and seeking to spring back up and recoil into its original position. He says, by nature, we take the truth of God and we press it down. And that is why God is justifi justifiably angered with our sin. Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? The truth was being suppressed. Suppressing the truth is not a passive action. It's an active step. If someone is still without Jesus, they are in a continued process of holding down or trying to suppress the truth, and therefore they remain under God's just wrath. Jesus displayed his divine wrath when he went into the temple twice during his incarnation and he cleared it out because the, the people who were sacrificing in there, the money changers that, that were in there, they were suppressing the truth that God was to be honored. What does it look like to suppress the truth? Suppressing the truth could be done by someone claiming that a single ethnicity is superior to others. 
or claiming that a single ethnicity is inferior to others when we know the Bible clearly teaches us that all human beings have been made in the image of God. Suppressing the truth could be someone claiming that it is acceptable to, to, to overtake a young person and to, to kidnap them and to send them into to the sex trafficking scandals of tragedy of our world. They would be suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth could be claiming that you are a different gender than the one that your creator made you to be. Suppressing truth could be someone claiming that God did not speak the world into existence, but rather things just came to be. Suppressing the truth could be someone claiming that God is whatever you want God to be. Do you see it? The human nature defaults towards suppressing the truth. And God cannot allow, if he's to be a just God, he cannot allow for someone to continue to suppress the truth. God's wrath is completely justified. When we excuse his divine indignation against sin, when, when, we, when we, we try to, to say it's, it's not right, we are speaking against justice. How then do we respond to the just wrath of God? Again, we are to be sobered by it. This is why we must teach our children that sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal not because you speak one word of disrespect to your parents, children, or because one cookie goes missing, or because one act of disobedience takes place. Parents and children, it's important that you know, that you teach your children that sin is a big deal, because the very, the risk is that they would face the wrath of God if they do not turn from their sin and trust that Jesus faced that wrath in their place. Be sobered by the just wrath of God. And then you can respond with thanksgiving. God does not randomly exercise wrath on humanity. He does so with justice. His actions are completely fair. He holds to his word. So when he tells you that he will pour out eternal wrath on your sin, you better believe that he will. And when he tells you that he has poured out his wrath on his son in your place, you better believe that he did. So you can respond with thanksgiving. We need to understand the seriousness of God's anger for our sin before we will believe that we can be recipients of God's righteousness. And we, when we understand, when we consider the parallel tracks of God's righteousness and God's wrath, we are called to respond with humility in our status, responsibility in our evangelism, and thanksgiving in our walk with Him. Let me close with a text to a song that we like to sing. The first stanza of my heart is filled with thankfulness. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in his light and wrote the law of his righteousness with power upon my heart. May God help us to be reminded of the truth of his wrath so that, we'll, that we will rejoice in his righteousness that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you are a good and faithful God. We know that you do all things well. 